Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low priced meat. So butcher box does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with the Box, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hey, Jake. Hey. How are you? Last year, not long after season one of Proof wrapped up and Lee and Josh came home, Jacinda asked Jake to give her a call. She had something important to talk to him about. So we are very interested in pursuing your case for our next season. Right on. <laughs> I'm smiling from here to here. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we told Jake that he should think about it. Having us look at his case would not necessarily lead to anything that could help him. And there's always a risk that it could harm him instead, because once an investigation begins, there's no way to know what's going to happen. But Jake told us he did not need to think about it. I have no problem. You can record whatever you want to record. I'm all for it, you know? Holy cow. I accepted this fate years ago. I'm gonna end up dying in here, you know? Wow. I'm Susan Simpson. And I'm Jacinda Davis. I'm an attorney and investigator. And I'm a true crime TV producer. And this is Proof Season 2, Murder at the Warehouse. Proof is a Red Marble Media production in association with Glassbox Media. For the past year, we've been reinvestigating what happened after 18-year-old Renee Ramis went missing in the spring of 2000. And we discovered that in this case, not everything is what it seems. This podcast tells the story of what our investigation uncovered. This is episode seven, Little Red.
After Ty's death at Mule Creek and Jake's near death there a couple years later, all legal activity on this case came to a halt. There was no one who had plans to look at Jake's and Ty's convictions ever again. Which means that what happened to Jake and Ty could have easily stayed buried forever. There might never have been questions raised about the soundness of the state's case at trial. By chance though, over the years, there were two women who happened to stumble across this case and they made sure that it was not forgotten. The first to take notice of this case was a woman named Joey. One evening, nearly 10 years ago now, she decided she'd watch a true crime show and picked out a random episode on Amazon Prime. It was real interrogation, they had done a show. That's Joey. That evening, she watched the real interrogations episode about Renee's murder. At the time, Joey's only experience with the criminal justice system came from watching the occasional true crime show. But this particular episode of Real Interrogations bothered her. She couldn't stop thinking about it. And I really wanted to know the story. And so I wrote both Jake and Ty. I didn't realize at the time that Ty had already been killed in prison. So, but Jake wrote me back. That was after I came out of the coma. I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to do everything. During his recovery from the assault at Meal Creek, Jake was at the lowest point of his life. He was ready to give up. And out of nowhere, I get a bunch of letters. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. And she showed up right on time. Right on time. Joey pulled me out of the darkness. When Joey had written to Jake and Ty, she had not intended to get involved in this case in any way. She had just been curious. But then Jake and Joey struck up a friendship. And after getting to know Jake, Joey realized that if she didn't do something, then no one ever would. I was like, who's helping you? Who's been digging into this case? Really, nobody, you know, he had just been an 18-year-old kid, and I think he just kind of felt like that was going to be his life now. I started reaching out to Innocent Projects. It was always a no. It just seemed like nobody was very interested. They're already swamped, and I think that this case was just so overwhelming. After what felt like endless no's, Joey finally got a yes. I spoke to Josh Tepper and asked him to take the case. He agreed to do so. In 2016, Josh Tepfer, an attorney with the Chicago-based Exoneration Project, agreed to take on Jake's case. Jake was thrilled. If he's going to pick up my case, holy shit, that, that's it. You know, my dad was all excited, everybody's all excited. Sixteen years had passed since Renee's murder, and there had been radical advances in forensic DNA analysis since then. The Exoneration Project wanted to see if these new techniques could turn up DNA that had not been detectable at the time of the original testing in 2000. They also wanted to test some critical pieces of evidence that had never been tested before. Her bra, her necklaces, the red shirt, all that stuff. Especially those necklaces. Because those three necklaces matched those ligature marks on her neck exactly perfect. And I highly doubt that the guy that did this shit was wearing gloves. I highly doubt it. Their DNA is all over her necklaces. In Jake's mind, Whatever had happened to Renee was probably something unplanned, spur of the moment. Whoever did it had probably been barehanded. And if they did use Renee's necklaces to strangle her, 
then there's a good chance that they would have left behind some of their own skin cells. They never checked for any of that shit. They never cared to. During the original investigation, detectives had not submitted Renee's necklaces to the crime lab for DNA testing. But if the necklaces could be tested now, they might just hold the answers to everything in this case. In November of 2016, Jake's attorneys at the Exoneration Project filed a motion for DNA testing. The San Joaquin County District Attorney's Office did not object. The order was granted. DNA testing was allowed to proceed. But there was a catch. There's always a catch. They didn't test very much DNA. They only tested, I wish they had taken it all and just tested it all for DNA. Well, they tried to. They requested to test, like, basically everything there was. But the stuff that hadn't been tested before at all, they couldn't find. Oh, they couldn't find it. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. I was wondering, why in the world did they test that stuff? So, oh. But D- Tepper did try, like, his motion did include all that, but the Manteca police said, uh, we can't find it, sorry, it's not here. Uh, yeah, like the necklaces and her clothing. Any of that would have been wonderful for DNA testing. Yeah, and but they, it's such a shame that they didn't have that. The Manteca police did find the rape kit and the fingernail clippings, and they shipped that evidence to the lab for a new round of DNA testing. However, Renee's clothing and necklaces could not be located. Chain of custody logs showed that Renee's clothing had been last returned to the Manteca Police Department, but they weren't there now. As for the hairs, the Manteca Police did find the package that had originally contained them. But as a deputy district attorney explained to Jake's attorney in an email, Manteca PD informed me that while they found the package, it was empty. Still, Jake's attorneys had reason to be hopeful. The rape kit and fingernail clippings had already been tested before, back in 2001, and no DNA, aside from Renee's own, had been found. But a new technique called YSTR testing might turn up DNA that previously had not been detected. YSTR testing amplifies minute amounts of genetic material from the Y chromosome, which, in cases involving a female victim, we know must have been contributed by someone other than the victim herself. Here's Kevin reading from the affidavit of a DNA expert that was submitted by Jake's attorneys. If the crime in this case involved a gang rape, including vaginal penetration, I would expect to find male DNA in a sexual assault kit. One of the testing methods outlined above should be able to successfully develop profiles from such male DNA. In March of 2017, the new round of DNA testing was completed. The results were the same as they had been before. No male profile was obtained from the samples. The DNA, all that YSTR testing did, was prove even farther that she wasn't raped. No male DNA profiles at all there, including me. Not long after that, the exoneration project notified Jake that they were dropping his case. After that, Jake's case stalled out and might have been forgotten once again. But then a woman named Kat Dean happened to hear about it. 
the way I got the case is it's it's really kind of quirky. I was on Facebook, you know, doing the kind of I, I do a lot of ranting and raving <laughs> about you know things that I care about. And I'm very much a part of the exoneration community, Facebook. Like, I'm on a million of those kind of threads. Kat is not an attorney or private investigator. Working on these cases is not her job, not something she's paid to do. But she volunteers to help out where she can, because she's recognized there's a need for her skills, and more importantly, for her willingness to help. On the cases I've worked on, all I've really done is they give me the evidence, and then I read everything. And then I just come back and then and say, listen, I see here is something there. You might want to ask your attorney. Maybe you want to, want to talk to some experts about this, blah, blah, blah. That's really what I've been doing for people. In doing so, Kat sometimes finds the wrongfully convicted who have fallen through the cracks. The innocent who, for a variety of reasons, have no one left to turn to and whose cases are stuck going nowhere. I want to make sure that at least the convicted person's knew what evidence was actually in their case. Because a lot of times the convicted people never know. But Jake has no idea what's in his discovery. And, you know, I don't have the ability to take it to the next step. There's got to be someone like you. But I can at least make sure that, you know, something doesn't go missing. When Kat looked at Jake's case, she'd realized he was one of those ones who'd fallen through the cracks. But she also realized how much potential his case had, if only there was someone willing to take it on. You know, who can we take this to? If the Innocence Project won't take it, I don't know what else to do except try to get somebody involved. If an attorney won't take the case on, well, maybe a podcast will. That's when Kat sent me an email. It didn't take me long to get back to her. Send me the case file, I told her. I want to see this for myself. I got the file and started reading. And then I told Jacinda and Kevin that they needed to give the case a look, too. Not long after that, Jacinda talked to Jake and let him know that we wanted to begin investigating his case. For Jake, it meant everything to know that after all these years, someone was going to be looking into his case once again. I do know one thing. When he started working with you, he got so excited. I, it really, it changed his whole viewpoint. He was excited. He, he had hope. One thing we do a lot while investigating is sign up for newspapers local papers all over the country trying to track down some scrap of info from, I don't know, the random 2007 edition of the Memphis paper, just for hypothetical example. <laughs> hypothetical. But the problem is we always forget to cancel those subscriptions. Luckily, there's a solution for people like us who sometimes lose track of things. And that's Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, you get full control over your subscriptions and a clear view of your expenses. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. That's amazing. That's, that's all I want in life is for someone to always deal with customer service for me. It's like having a personal assistant. Rocket Money has over 5 billion users and has saved them over $500 billion. 
and saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash proof. That's rocketmoney.com slash proof. Rocketmoney.com slash proof. Susan, it's no secret that I have been taking Nutrafol and loving it for a few months now. Susan, have you gotten your Nutrafol yet? I finally did. I'm on the Nutrafol train and I'm really excited because not going to lie, my hair's been a hot mess this whole season. I think this season has impacted both of our hair in not great ways. Our sanity, our health, and definitely like like ripping hair out in frustration sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But thankfully, Nutrafol is there to help. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology. Take the hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code PROOF. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. Promo code PROOF. That's Nutrafol.com. Promo code PROOF. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. If you're going to try to reinvestigate this case, which is what we were hoping to do, then just going off the case file, you quickly run into a problem. The original investigation to Renee's murder had focused intensely on Jake Silva. His every move in the weeks before and after Renee's death were scrutinized in detail. So if you want to know something about Jake Silva, the case file probably has you covered. But if you want to know something about someone other than Jake Silva, well, there the records get thin. There are reports in the case file that would seem to raise questions and eyebrows about many of the people Renee encountered in the last days of her life. But more often than not, these questions were left unexamined and unanswered. Because, as Detective Tony Souza explained to Jake during his first interrogation, Renee had to have been killed by someone she was closely connected to. Things happened for a reason. I've been here for 10 years. I don't know any woman that's ever ended up dead anywhere where we got some raging lunatic out there trying to kill him. Doesn't happen. No one but a raging lunatic would murder a woman at random. And there were no raging lunatics in Manteca. Does Manteca have those type of people? They don't. Once we began to investigate this case for ourselves, though, we began to see that there were more potential threats in Manteca than perhaps the original investigators had accounted for. 
Katine had reached a similar conclusion when she looked at the case. I just have this vision of her. It's almost like a little red riding hood. She's just little red riding hood surrounded by wolves. Jake and Renee had felt so safe that it never occurred to them that what they were doing, living on the streets, sleeping in the open, crashing on random floors of random houses, could make them vulnerable. It never occurred to them that there might be wolves out there. My dumbass, I left her at labor ready like that. Because we were so we were so comfortable with the, with the town and we knew everybody. It didn't seem dangerous to you. I know, that's what I've done. I took it all for granted, to way too much. We both kind of did, but I'm 41 years old now, and I'm looking back like, fuck. I don't know why the hell I left her there like that. If I didn't, she'd still be here. Oh, crap. I don't know what the hell happened. Kat Dean has always thought that if someone were to investigate this case again, the best place to start would be at the last place we know for certain Renee was still alive. I picture her in labor ready. She was very pretty, very petite. And if there was some kind of predator in that crew, I mean, they may have waited until she got down the block before they approached her so that they wouldn't be seen. That morning, after Jake left the labor ready to go nap in the park, there had been 12 people in the lobby of the building. 10 men waiting to get assigned work. The woman working at the front desk, plus Renee. From what we can tell from the police files, detectives only spoke to about half of the men who'd been there that morning. But the statements from the ones they did talk to make it clear that Renee had stood out in this crowd. Some of the people in the labor-ready lobby had recalled her vividly. Most of the people who were at labor-ready that morning no longer live in Manteca, but we were able to reach one of them by phone. He said that Ramos appeared to either be sleeping or sleepy while at the labor-ready. Another subject with a handlebar mustache brought Renee a cup of coffee. He believes yep, Renee- I remember that. What do you recall about that? Um, just look at the cup of coffee when we were going up to the counter. Um, and getting it and taking it over to her. But they seemed like they were arguing at the time, so I don't know. You remember the guy getting the coffee, arguing with Mm -hmm. her? Yes. When I spoke to this labor-ready worker, his memory of everything that happened that morning had seemed pretty good. Most of what he told me tracked exactly with what was written in the police report. And he had told detectives back then about a man with a handlebar mustache bringing Renee a cup of coffee after she fell asleep in her chair. But this detail about witnessing some kind of argument or tension between that man and Renee appears nowhere in the reports. So I wasn't sure what to make of the fact that now, 23 years later, he was certain that something like that had occurred. I've been curious about this guy with the coffee and the handlebar mustache. It's interesting that you think you recall now that they were arguing or there was something going on between them. There was some kind of, you know... I don't know if I want to say altercation, but there seemed to be tension, definitely. There's no reference here to them arguing. I'm curious if you think that... I remember remember specifically explaining that to her. (laughs) 
there are two things that could be going on here. First, it's possible that the labor ready worker's memory has shifted some over the past 23 years. And this detail he recalls now, about Renee and the man with the handlebar mustache having some kind of tense discussion, is something that never actually happened. Or it's possible that it did happen, that he did tell the detective who spoke to him about it. But for whatever reason, this detail didn't make it into the brief summary that was typed up after the interview. Both scenarios are possible, both happen, probably a lot more than you'd think. And that's one of the tricky things about investigating old cases like this. How do you tell these two situations apart? How do you figure out if it's the written report or the witness's memory that has the details wrong? It's a little strange to me, though, that detectives had not been more curious about the man with the handlebar mustache. Because the first time they talked to Jake Silva, one of the first things he told them was that he thought that was someone they should look at. Who is this guy? Um, he's got brown hair and he's got a handlebar mustache. Um, he's always like staring at me now after this has happened. He was there that day mm-hmm. that she was there. You mean at labor right Yeah. I asked Jake if he remembered now why this man with the mustache had stood out to him. When detectives had asked him back then who might be a suspect in this case, why was that man the first person that Jake had thought of? Uh, he kept looking at us, I guess. At us? So you remember him looking at you that morning? Well, not like staring at us, but like like looking over at us. And I noticed him, and I, I think I made a comment to her about it even. Like, that guy's kind of weird, you know, like, like hoping that she wasn't going to get a job with him or something somewhere, you know? But it stood out to you. Yeah, it just it seemed out of place. Like, but that's me judging a book by its cover. I get mad when people do it to me, you know? Yeah, but did you know that he later talked to Renee after you left? I remember you told me a, a guy gave her some coffee and, like, tried to help her get up, like, wake up. Is he the one that got her the coffee and stuff? Yeah, that was him. Oh, I didn't know it was him. There's something else Jake said, too, in that first interrogation that, from the records we have, detectives never seem to have followed up on. They were leaving. They were going to work. Oh, so did she go to, like, a job? That she was telling me that, you know, they were going. And I guess they ended up not going or something, you know? The day Renee's body was found, detectives spoke to the manager at Labor Ready who pulled the records and told them Renee had checked in that morning, but had not signed the checkout sheet, indicating she had not received any pay for that day. Jake's memory today, though, is the same as it was back then. When he left Renee that morning, he says the woman at the front desk had made it clear that Renee probably would be getting sent to a job site somewhere. But detectives did not reach out to the woman who was working the front desk that day until two and a half months later. And by then, her memory was hazy about what had happened that morning. The lady at the desk was like, well, we got we got a lot of stuff open. There's there's stuff going on. In your very first interrogation, you actually say that when you left, you were under the impression she probably would get a job. Yeah. And she was just going to hop in a car with one of those random guys and go there? I didn't know how it worked. If you had to go there on your own or if you had to go there with, with people or I didn't know how it worked. Yeah, no, they caught rides with other workers. So, like, I think the idea was she would hop in a car with one of the random guys there and they'd drive her to the work site. Oh, wow. You didn't know that? No. They didn't tell us nothing like that. Would you have been okay with that back then, do you think? No. 
even back then, that would have seemed sketchy to you? Yeah, that, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. That, that, her all by herself in the car with some random, random guys, no, that doesn't sound right. Fuck, man. Do you think she would have, yeah. if Renee had gotten a job, do you think she would have gone ahead and jumped the car with one of those guys? I don't know. She was really concerned and wanted to get that money, so she probably, she probably would have. The detectives did look at Labor Ready. Very early on in the investigation, they checked the criminal history of all the men that Labor Ready's records showed had been there the same morning as Renee. But from the records we have, they only ever found and interviewed half of them, which I mentioned to the Labor Ready worker that I spoke to. It was always curious to me the police didn't really look at the Labor Ready. I mean, they talked to a few people. That doesn't make much sense either. I mean, you do an investigation like that, you would expect to, to speak to everybody that was there. The labor-ready worker told me that, just in his opinion, the other workers there that morning should have been closely scrutinized. He was shocked when I told them that a lot of them had never been spoken to at all. I will say, though, I can tell you this for a fact, that there was a lot of, of should I say, undesirable people working there. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of times you can't even get into the bathrooms because people were in there doing drugs. Based on the witness statements the police did get, it seems as if Renee fell asleep in her chair, again, after the man had handed her some coffee. But eventually, she woke up, found out there was no work for her, and left the building on foot. All witness statements agreed that Renee had been alone as she walked away. But that doesn't mean someone couldn't have followed after her. I mean, it does make sense. That's the obvious answer. She never got far from labor ready. It's the obvious answer because it explains one of the biggest mysteries in the case. After Renee left labor ready, she would have gone to see someone, surely. If not Jake, then she'd have gone to hang out with someone else. She would have gone somewhere. But where'd she go? There's no one who claims to have been with her that day. I mean, if she's alive all day Monday, how does she not speak to anybody? Maybe she did. If she had talked to someone she knew on the 29th, they could have a very good reason for not coming forward about it. Because they did something to her? Yeah. One thing we know for sure is that at some point, the person or people who killed Renee must have gone to the Home Depot. And shortly after Renee's body was found, the police did collect surveillance tapes from several businesses around the Home Depot. Whoever committed this crime might have been seen by security cameras, either coming or going to the construction site. In fact, some of the Home Depot workers that I spoke to said that they thought the killers had been recorded on surveillance footage. That's what they'd been told anyway. Then they catch them by like the video of them coming into the job site out of their car, driving into that field or something. That's what I heard. Was there a uh, camera that would have covered the entrance? I mean, the, the gas station across the street, I thought, got a glimpse of like their car coming into it or something. Hmm. There's only one There's only one way in, one way out. Maybe but if, not if there. what you're saying is right, then whoever got there should have been on the camera. Yeah. So 
did surveillance tapes from the gas station or other nearby businesses yield any clues as to who the killer might be? We don't know. We don't know what's on those tapes. If I could choose one piece of evidence in this case to force the Manteca police to give to me, it'd be all the surveillance tapes. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, right? You know, the thing is, they just didn't, they didn't take into account that she was missing from the 29th. If they had just gone back to when she was last seen on Monday. According to police reports, Detective Tony Souza instructed officers to go to the gas stations around the Home Depot and collect surveillance tapes from Saturday, June 3rd through Monday, June 5th. So from five days after Renee was last seen at Labor Ready up until the day her body was found. But if Renee was killed before Saturday, which seems very possible, then those tapes probably would not have had anything on them relevant to her murder. But I still think those surveillance tapes could be important. Because there's also a second police report in the file that mentions this gas station across the street and briefly notes that three additional tapes were collected from it. No further details given. Nothing in the report gives the dates that these tapes were recorded on. Although actually there's also no records to indicate that any police officer ever actually watched those tapes. I mean, I would assume someone probably did at some point, but we have no records that confirm it. Still, based on what is confirmed in police reports, what we know for sure to be true, the surveillance videos collected from the gas stations next to the Home Depot cover the time period only from Saturday onwards. No footage from Memorial Day, when Renee was last seen at Labor Ready, was collected. They should have done it on Monday when she disappeared. They should have gone all the way back. But it was that kid, Jeremy Ward. After that, they really didn't feel the need to because they believed him. Jeremy Ward is one of the last known people to have seen Renee alive. In fact, he's one of the last known people to have seen Renee alive twice over. Because Jeremy Ward had been there at Labor Ready on Monday morning when Renee walked in. Andy told police he saw Renee again later that week as well, three or four days later. Here's Kevin reading the police report from when Jeremy Ward was interviewed, the day after Renee's body was found. Ward said he had known Renee and Jake for about one to two months. He said he met them through his friend Derek. Ward said that the last time he saw Renee and Jake was either Thursday, June 1st or Friday, June 2nd, between 3 and 4 p.m. He saw them standing on the corner and he stopped and offered them a ride. Jake got in the front seat and Renee got into the back seat. I asked Ward if he remembers the conversation between Jake and Renee. He believes they said they got finished cleaning a construction site for Labor Ready. I asked Ward if he remembers seeing Jake or Renee any other time. He said that he also saw both of them at Labor Ready earlier that week. Renee was filling out an application. If this report from Jeremy Ward is believed, then it changes everything we think we know about the case. It would mean that Renee and Jake had been together, as usual, up until just a few days before her body was found. And at the time Ward made this report, the police had no reason not to believe it. Ward was one of the first witnesses they spoke to, and they had nothing to contradict him. They thought he had seen him, and so the whole case got really screwed up right there with them them just taking Jeremy Ward's word for it. 
From what we can tell, the police did believe Jeremy, at least at first. In affidavits, Jeremy Ward is cited as evidence that Jake Silva had been lying when he said he last saw Renee at Labor Ready on Memorial Day. You would think then that Jeremy Ward would be an important witness in this case. Because he's the only one that said that he had even had them in his car. Everyone else said right. I saw her walking down the street. Of the post-Memorial Day sightings, he is the only one who says he actually right. talked to Renee. I'm sure they found out that was a lie because they dropped him like a hot potato. Jeremy Ward did not testify at trial. In fact, there's no record of the police ever talking to Jeremy again. He kind of just disappears from the case file. His name never appears again. Who is Jeremy Ward? I remember that name. I don't know exactly. What I'm trying to figure out is who this Jeremy Ward was and why he said he gave y'all a ride. I'm trying my hardest to remember. I would love to know if he actually knew you guys. Because he says he did, but... Jake has no memory of Jeremy Ward. He doesn't think Jeremy was a friend of his, but with Jake's brain injury and the holes in his memory, that doesn't mean too much. But even if Jeremy Ward had known Jake and Renee and would have offered to give them a ride somewhere, what doesn't make any sense at all is the conversation that Jeremy describes having with Jake and Renee when they were in his car that day. So he told the police that when he picked you and Renee up and drove y'all to the MSRP hall, that y'all told him that you had just come from working at Labor Ready and cleaning up a construction site. That I did? Yeah, that's what he said uh, you and Renee I, told him. Uh, we never worked at Labor Ready. Not before this, we never worked at Labor Ready, not one time. That's how that we... the first time I've ever been there. Records from Labor Ready show that Jake is right about this. There's no indication that he or Renee ever got paid for working at Labor Ready. And that's why Jake's friend Joey is so certain that Jeremy Ward's story can't be true. Jake and Renee simply would not have had the discussion that Jeremy says he heard them have. He's definitely someone that I would want to know the reason for why he's misled everybody. I'd really love to know. We don't know why Jeremy Ward said that he gave Renee and Jake a ride on that Thursday or Friday. There are no answers in the case file. The only way to get an answer would be to try and find Jeremy Ward for ourselves and to see if he could tell us what exactly had happened here. If you're going to try to reinvestigate this case, there are actually two separate sets of questions that need to be looked at. The first is, did Jake and Ty kill Renee? And if they didn't, how were they convicted? The second question is related to the first, but also distinct from it. And that's, if Jake and Ty did not kill Renee, then who did? Who are the alternate suspects that need to be looked at? In some cases, alternate suspects are a dime a dozen. Those case files are littered with possible alternate killers. People who were glimpsed close to the crime scene, or who had allegedly confessed to others, or just had a blatantly obvious motive. Lots of cases have tons of those. This case does not. There's only ever really been a single alternate suspect. Except it's not even an alternate suspect, really. 
it's more like an alternate story because it's not totally clear who the suspect in that story is supposed to be. It all begins with a guy named Eric Greer and a tale he was telling everyone who would listen. All right, uh, my name is Sid Reams and I'm here at Northgate Park. This is Friday, May the 10th, 2002. I'm here with Eric Greer and we're gonna be doing some discussing of what he knows about the Rene Ramos murder. Sid Reams was one of Ty Lopes's closest friends. And after Ty's conviction, Sid Reams decided that someone needed to sit down and make a formal record, or at least a semi-formal record, of what Eric Greer knew. So he set up a camera on a tripod and sat down with Eric at a picnic table to videotape a conversation with him. And, and you know, my reasoning for doing this, Eric, is, you know, my friend Ty is in jail, uh, and he's been convicted of rape and murder. And uh, you have information and you have, you have knowledge that he, and awareness that you don't think he did it, right? No, I don't. Yeah. I honestly don't think that he had anything to do with it whatsoever. What Eric Greer says on that tape is something that, in the course of this investigation, we've come to refer to as the sister story. Okay, well, it was either Friday or Saturday night. Um, I was at the pub in Manteca, and I ended up getting into some trouble and getting arrested that night. But two days later, when I got released, the house that I was staying at, uh, Jamie and Julie's house, it was their house. The house was a duplex off of Pistana Avenue, way over on the east side of town, even past the Home Depot, behind the racquetball club on Yosemite Avenue. A lot of people were in and out of this house. Eric refers to it as a kickback spot where people often went to party. But the permanent residents there were sisters, Jamie and Julie. And uh, anyways, when I got to the house, when I got out of jail, uh, Jamie was uh, crying. She was pulling her hair out. And um, my friend Liam, Julie's boyfriend, um, he was laying on the ground crying. He just wouldn't even look at me, wouldn't say nothing. He was just sobbing, just weeping, kind of like, you know, sucking in and out, just like jitter, really jittery, you know? Right. Barely could breathe. And Julie's sister, Jamie, I went in there and questioned her, asked her what happened, and all she could say was that uh, they killed her, they killed her. Jamie told you they killed her. Now, did she ever say who they she were? Didn't say no. I didn't have time. Her sister started punching her. And Ju uh, Julie told her sister to shut up because she had told me that. And they started fighting. And they locked themselves in the room. And when they came out, uh, Jamie changed her story and was kind of calmer. This is an interesting story, sure. But the thing is, according to Eric, he doesn't actually know what happened. All he knows are rumors and hearsay and assumptions he's making based on how weird people were acting that day. And if that had been all Eric Greer knew, then maybe he never would have gone to the police to tell them about it. But that day, when he was over at the house on Pistana Avenue, he had seen something that shouldn't have been there. And I seen the backpack and the shoes in a closet at that house. I seen that backpack in her closet with the tennis shoes. What, what did the tennis shoes look like? They were white kids, I believe. That's right when I contacted the police and they went over there and they didn't find it. A few weeks after Renee's body was found, the Manteca newspaper published an article about how Renee's backpack and shoes had not been found at the crime scene. And Eric recalled the backpack and shoes that he'd seen at the house on Pistana Avenue. And he concluded that they must have belonged to Renee. 
The police did eventually go out to the house in Pistana Avenue. And with the sister's permission, they looked through it for the shoes and backpack. They found nothing. Detectives also spoke to the sisters separately and asked them about what Eric Greer had said. Jamie, the younger sister, said she had no idea what they were talking about. But Julie, the older sister, had known exactly what detectives were asking her about. And she was able to explain to them what had really happened. Here's Kevin again, reading what's written in that police report. Julie told me that after the discovery of Renee Ramis at Home Depot, she heard visitors to her home joking about the death. She did not remember who made these comments, but did remember that Eric Greer was present and freaked out over the jokes. She explained that those that were joking about Renee's death were saying things such as, he killed her, and that Eric appeared to take these comments seriously. Julie told me that she became angry with those joking about Renee, and that she told the responsible persons to stop. Eric Greer is just paranoid, Julie told the detectives. He had heard people joking about Renee's death and thought they were being serious when they weren't. There's nothing more to it than that. The detectives seem to have agreed with Julie. According to police reports, they did not pursue the lead further. But if you did want to do more to investigate the sister story, then you'd probably want to start with Eric Greer. Unfortunately, that's not an option. He died several months after Ty's friend recorded him making that statement. I asked Joey and Kat what they thought about the sister story. What do we really know about it? Has it already been looked into? Was this something worth investigating further? Well, I thought it was worth checking out for sure. And at first I thought, boy, this definitely is unusual. I mean, he believed whatever was going on. You were interested at first. Oh, very. Oh my God, that was, he had a very elaborate story that was detailed. I looked up everything I possibly could find. Oh, for a long time, I thought they just overlooked this because they didn't want to look at it. The first time I'd flipped through the case file and seen records related to Eric Greer and the whole sister story, I had not been impressed. I kind of wanted to overlook it, too. But it's pretty much the only alternative theory in this case, so I knew there wasn't really a choice. I'd have to look at it at some point. But I wasn't looking forward to it. It was one of those leads that, from past experience, I knew would probably just lead to a whole lot of frustration and wasted time. At first glance, Eric's story looks to be straightforward. But there are details that are somewhat off. For example, take those shoes that Eric says he saw at the sister's house. Eric is adamant that they were white sneakers. He describes them as Keds. But all of the newspaper articles about Renee's missing shoes and backpack describe the shoes as tan and black vans. This is why Joey ended up deciding that the Eric Greer story was just a red herring. The more I focused on that, the more it didn't seem to be what could have happened. He seemed to really be uh, fixated on the fact that he thought her shoes were at that house. And uh, those weren't, you know, her shoes. She did have two pairs of shoes, though. Everyone talks about the the vans. But she had a second pair, apparently. The black and brown vans may have been the shoes that all the police reports talked about. But Jake says they weren't the only pair of shoes that Renee owned. 
She had the Vans and she had the white shoes, a white pair of Adidas, all white, like low top leather ones. You think they were Adidas? Her white ones were, I think, weren't they? I don't know. I thought they were Adidas. I don't know if she had them on her or in her backpack, but she had a white pair of shoes for sure. You remember Eric Greer, right? So one of the reasons his story gets dismissed is that when he says he saw the pair of shoes and the backpack at the sister's house, he describes the shoes as white tennis shoes. But the police were looking for the brown and black bands. So... Well, she had a pair of white shoes. I know that for a fact. So the shoes alone aren't a reason to discount the sister's story. But there's a bigger reason why, at first glance, I had not been particularly interested in what Eric Rear had to say. And that's the fact that Renee did not know any of these people. Why would Renee have ever been hanging out with them in the first place? They were much older than her, mostly mid-20s. And the sisters lived way, way east of town, in a location where Renee was not known to frequent. And they ran in a totally different circle than Renee and her friends did. Renee simply had no reason to ever be hanging out at the house on Pastana Avenue. Renee's only on the streets because she wanted to be with Jake. The alternative, if she's not going to be with Jake, would just to be moved back home. So the minute Jake's out of the picture, she said, okay, I'm leaving Jake. I don't want anything more to do with this guy. She's not going to just roam the streets randomly. She's just going to go back home to her other wife, is, is what I would assume. Kat's theory here makes sense. Even if we were to assume that after leaving Labor Ready that morning, Renee decided she was sick of Jake's shit and she wasn't going to go meet him at the park, how and why would she have ended up at a house on the opposite side of town with people she didn't even know? There's no reason for Renee to be making new acquaintances or doing any of that stuff. This is why basically everyone who has looked at the sister story has ended up dismissing it as a probable dead end. Why would Renee have ever gone to the house on Pastana Avenue? But Eric Greer believed that, for some reason, that's exactly what she had done. Was Renee involved in this whole group of people? Just maybe for about three or four, five days, she had just met these people. Oh, I see. Just met them. For many, many years, the sister story was the only sort of alternate suspect in this case. It probably would have remained the only alternate suspect, too, if it hadn't been for all the people at the Home Depot who started reporting that they'd seen a ghost. No, this is weird. Um, So, like, I ended up going to work for Home Depot at that store where she was. When I started there, they said, don't be alarmed. But there was a girl that got killed here when they were building the Home Depot. They would tell me, they were like, yeah, um, Sometimes when you're back here, the lights will turn off and on, um, a door will slam, and uh, they, you know, they said it was a ghost. The Home Depot employees didn't know it, but the new employee they were telling these stories to had already known all about the girl who was found at the Home Depot. He'd been standing right there when she was found. He had thought she was a mannequin at first. I didn't tell anybody that I built the Home Depot there and I was one of the first ones to see her. I didn't say anything, but they had told me stories. Um, I never experienced any of that when I worked there. I only worked there for like four or five months. I can just imagine you know? your coworkers telling you this. Yeah. I didn't want to talk about it. I just stayed quiet about it and just listened to their stories. So 
So many employees had experienced mysterious events while working at the Home Depot that they began documenting these encounters online. It doesn't exist anymore, but there used to be a site called strangeusa.com. It was kind of like a Wikipedia for haunted locations in America. The Manteca Home Depot had its own page, with a brief description of the hauntings that had supposedly occurred there. Like the sound of phantom music playing, lights flicking on and off, the sound of footsteps running through the mezzanine when no one was up there, doors opening and slamming shut in their own accord. And sometimes, late at night, the ghostly apparition of a girl standing alone inside the warehouse. The website also had a comment section, and at one point, the Home Depot's page had an active conversation going on. Home Depot employees chimed in with their own ghost sightings, and some of them sought advice on how to explain to the ghost that her killers had been convicted and her soul could be at peace now. Most of the comments, though, were not about the paranormal. They were from people who had known Renee and Ty and Jake, and who were reminiscing about Renee and expressing hope that Jake and Ty were suffering in prison. In 2011, several people posted updates noting Ty's murder at Mill Creek. And after that, conversation on the site slowed to a trickle and eventually stopped. The page was basically dead. Then, in 2014, years after there last been any activity on the site, someone posted a final comment. They're innocent. I have proof and facts and should have come forward years ago, but didn't. Now an innocent man is dead. In 2008, my 14-year-old relative was kidnapped and assaulted. The person that did it lived right behind the Indy car wash across the street from Home Depot. In fact, his brother owned the car wash and he was also a convicted sex offender and a friend of mine. I have way more evidence to prove he did it. The comment had been posted anonymously. There was no way to know who had written it or why. And maybe it meant nothing. After all, an anonymous comment on a website dedicated to ghost sightings is not exactly the most credible source. Once we started to investigate this case for ourselves, Kat Dean's image of Renee as Little Red Riding Hood would come back to me often. The pretty girl in the bright red Limbiscuit shirt living out in the streets where she was both comfortable and yet, at the same time, somehow out of place. Walking through town with a bounce in her step, ponytail bobbing behind her. Seemingly unaware of what might be lurking in the shadows around her and of how much attention she was drawing. There were a lot of people we spoke to who told us about how she had caught their attention, even when they hadn't known who she was. Some of that attention was innocent. One guy told us that after seeing Renee behind the counter at McDonald's, he pretended to apply for a job there, when in reality, he used the application form as an excuse to give Renee his phone number. But some of the attention was less innocent. We spoke to a man 10 years Renee's senior who told us he had known her for about five years and that he'd been counting down the days until she turned 18 so he could ask her out. And life on the streets made Renee vulnerable. She was crashing on the floors of friends and acquaintances and out in the open when they couldn't find a roof to sleep under. Even having Jake by her side wasn't always enough to protect her. Like the night when she'd slept on the floor of Ty's room and woken up to him touching her. There had been wolves out there on the streets of Manteca. 
But if you're looking for the big bad wolf, there's an obvious place to start. And that would be what the man described in that anonymous comment left on the website about the hauntings at Home Depot. About a convicted sex offender who, just a few years after Renee was killed, had kidnapped another teenage girl. Who, at the time of Renee's disappearance, had been living in the same neighborhood as Renee's family. And who had been connected to the Indies car wash, which was just across the street from the Home Depot and right next to the McDonald's where Renee had worked. A man like that surely would have seen Renee at some point. How could he not have? Their paths would have been crossing all the time. That is, assuming this man actually exists, and the comment had not just been someone's terrible idea of an online joke. But even if the man does exist, how would we ever find him? That anonymous comment had given no names and few details to go on. To even have a chance of finding out what happened to Renee, we would have to go to Manteca and start investigating this case for ourselves. We had no idea what we'd find once we got to Manteca, but our hope was that just maybe we'd be able to find some answers. I just hope we can figure out what actually happened. She deserves that. She deserves the fucking real justice. I mean, you're right, she deserves justice and everyone deserves to know the truth. Next week on Proof, it's time for us to go to Manteca and begin our investigation. I'm in California and I'm in line for the In-N-Out burger restaurant. Susan just landed at the airport in San Francisco, and this line is crazy long. Susan is going to have to just wait for me because a burger is more important. Okay, well, after Jacinda is done with her burger, then our investigation begins. You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media in association with Glassbox Media. We'll be back next week with episode eight. Send us your questions and comments at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Vasowski, and our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by George Panos and Michael Ulatowski. Production assistance was provided by Zion Slava. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. And thank you to our sponsors who make this podcast possible. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. And lastly, a note to our listeners. If you have any information related to this case, we'd love to speak to you. No matter how small a detail it may seem, It just might be more important than you realize. You can reach us by email or leave us a voicemail at 929-267-3172. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. 